Hello and welcome to The Pulse. In this week's show, police have been given new guidelines on how to respond when people call them nasty names. And we report on this week's election of the Sports Federation and Olympic Committee of Hong Kong. First, though, there's been shock, horror and consternation in some pro-Beijing circles about what's happening in Taiwan this week. Pro-Democrat protests in Hong Kong have been spectacularly well-behaved in the past, but there are those who are determined to worry that they might become violent in the future. Ironically, even in Taiwan, most of the physical violence against individuals seems to have come from the authorities. Last Tuesday, the government of Taiwanese President Ma Ying-jeou passed a trade pact with mainland China in less than a minute. The trade deal would open up more than 100 service sectors, ranging from banks and telecommunications to travel agents and hospitals. Many views the ruling party as having steamrolled the political system by going back on a promise to allow a thorough review and debate of the terms of the deal before passing it and sending it straight to the Guomindang-controlled parliament for a vote. Hundreds of protesters, mostly young students, stormed security barriers and took over the parliamentary chambers. It was the first occupation of the legislative yuan in Taiwan's history. I went to the uh, parliament, into the parliament, inside the parliament, uh, for almost uh, three hours in early morning. So most of the students are, um, uh, they were sleeping. More than 20 of them were having meeting, um, probably because uh, they were afraid that um, the police uh, may, uh, may get in and, um, you know, to, uh, to ask them to come out. Um, so they, need to do, they needed to do some preparations. They are very peaceful and at the same time they are very rational. You can see that uh, um, different uh, students have uh, had different positions. They have uh, pl plastic bottles and plastic bags in the room. So if the policeman, uh, if, the police, if the policeman is going to block all the exits or at the entrance of the meeting room, then they can, at least they can have, uh, they can have some places for uh, emergency needs. The call of nature. Taiwan's Premier Zhang Yihua told protesters the pact would help the island internationalize its markets. Feeling they couldn't trust the government, protesters were not ready for dialogue. More and more students realize that the trade pact is actually a pact uh, for the rich. Uh, it's, uh, it's just, it will only benefit a small clique of the uh, uh, big business and, and therefore the students, and, and especially the young people, because apart from the students, there are actually a lot of you know, uh, young uh, workers joining in the movement after work, uh, supporting the students. While Beijing views the trade pact economic sweetener to increase Taiwanese integration with the mainland, that's precisely what many Taiwanese don't want. They also say that the pact will lead to fewer jobs. More than 100 professors have backed the student movement.
They're concerned about procedural democracy. Okay, the procedure was really, really bad. The, the KMT, the party Kyrgyz, just want to push this in a very violent way. So student doesn't believe that you know, it's, it's a suitable way for, for the government to deal with the law. And the second is they are worried about with the pact that Taiwan might be influenced a lot by China in economics, the, the press freedom, because in the, in the, in the regulation, Chinese can actually invest in advertising industry. And what happened in Hong Kong right now, advertisement can influence the newspapers. In this uh, example of SIPA, uh, a lot of, uh, uh, so to speak, benefits uh, shared by people with like, uh, in, in the service sector, particularly the consumer service sectors, okay? And those sectors tend to employ relatively low-skilled laborers. So as you can imagine, if the economy is swamped by all these like, low-skill uh, uh, set of jobs, the demand for high-skill labor would decrease. So for college students who, who we would consider as a high-skill labor, they may not get that much of benefits from this like, kind of economy. So I think this is what they are worrying about. People are very worried about, you know, there's a secret alliance between the KMT government and the Beijing government, and also the, the capitalism between the two sides. Students occupying the legislative yuan became increasingly divided, with more radical deciding to storm the executive yuan. Some of the students were actually cornered and beaten up by seven to eight police uh, with, with bat batons. Students witnessing the violence of the police action have called for a national strike. Back in Hong Kong, some have adopted the slogan, Today Taiwan, Tomorrow Hong Kong. Local pro-democratic organizers are watching Taiwan's sunflower movement. So far, I can see that most of the people who went there and support the students or support this movement, um, they believe they have a strong belief in non-violent uh, civil disobedience. I think we are still observing the development in Taiwan closely. And surely occupying acts would uh, generate political pressure on all sides to try to uh, reach a consensus or a certain kind of compromise to the conflict. And um, in the Hong Kong situation, I think uh, if we have to resort to that occupying act, that will surely also generate political pressure to all sides to try to reach a compromise or consensus on the uh, election method of chief executive. But if you ask me at the end whether such a compromise or consensus could be reached, I don't think anyone at this stage can have a very certain answer. The police have been given new guidelines on how to handle abuse from members of the public. But given that it seems to be part of the police force's job to deal with people in tense situations, some observers say this seems either overkill or a potential infringement of human rights. Well, with us in the studio are Law Yuk Gai of the Human Rights Monitor and Ricky Chu of the Independent Police Complaints Council. Ricky Chu, can I come to you? There's a lot of confusion about these guidelines. Can you just explain them? Uh, yeah, we were given a briefing by the police a uh, couple of weeks ago. Uh, according to the police, this guideline is nothing new. It's a consolidation of past good practices based on real scenarios of street encounters between police officers and members of the public, whereby uh, 
people were using uh, abusive languages or abusive behavior uh, which fell short of a criminal nature. Because if it's a criminal uh, behavior, it would be easy to deal with according to the existing law. So they are dealing with gray areas. And the guideline aims at unifying the police practice in uh, handling this. And apparently it doesn't apply to demonstrations or triad gatherings for some bizarre reason. Uh, yes, there are five uh, particular categories that these new guidelines uh, do not apply. One is uh, the public order events. Uh, second is the uh, trial activities. Third is the midnight, uh, late night warrants. Fourth is handling drunken people. Uh, the last is handling insane people. Merely because these five scenarios would be dealt with by existing protocols and guidelines uh, listed out elsewhere. So these new guidelines aim at cover those vacant areas. Things like um, disputes in traffic offenses uh, handling, uh, or people being stopped for uh, questioning, ID card check, uh, stop for search, etc. Right, so Mr. Law, what's the problem from your point of view with all of this? Well, actually, I welcome this uh, guy lies. Uh, first, uh, you ask the police officers to remain calm and uh, patience in dealing with this kind of situation, uh, and if possible, uh, try to defuse the situation. Uh, it also reminds the police officers. Uh, where there's no offense, okay, just like mere words of uh, foul languages, okay, it would not amount to criminal offense. And uh, they, uh, in those circumstances, okay, what they need to do is to um, explain uh, why they take police action and make sure they have done uh, all, taken all the police action appropriate ones and then leave the scene. Uh, if they have uh, this kind of uh, my in uh, uh, daily duty, I think it would avoid some problems. Uh, of course, we want to make sure that police officers know that it's constitutional obligation for them to explain to the, to the public why they take actions. Well, we're going to take a break for a moment, but we'll come back to this discussion. See you soon. Welcome back, and we're continuing a discussion on new police guidelines dealing with abusive language from members of the public. Um, Ricky Chu, you said before the break that, that uh, this, this is a kind of almost a housekeeping thing, you know, bringing, uh, bringing some sort of context into the way police handle these things. But I think a lot of people seem to believe that all of this arises from a rather famous incidence with a teacher during a, a demonstration. Is that really nothing to do with this? Uh, I'm not saying there's nothing to do. I mean, the scenario mm. is one of those scenarios that the police are always having difficulties mm. in uh, encountering, mainly because merely speaking foul language is not an offence. So uh, you cannot arrest the offender, so to say. So how to deal with these people that are using either foul languages or... Uh, other abu non-criminal abusive behaviours to interfere with the police discharging of the duty. I, I, I wonder, Mr. Law, whether um, your, your concerns about this really do relate to demonstrations more than anything else. Well, I think this guy lie is really triggered by that. But I, I think at the end of the day, uh, the police found that there's no law really for them 
we need to arrest people who really mm. use our abusive languages. So do you think and there'll be more arrests during demonstrations now? I hope there would not be these kind of things, but uh, all the signs are that the police are using quite uh, heavy-handed measures for us uh, demonstrators uh, who are uh, um, challenging the legitimacy of the authorities, both in Hong Kong and in, in China, especially if they uh, do not really cooperate in all sense with the police. Well, <laughs> let me ask Mr. Chu about that, because the, your, your um, council, which is called an independent council, mm -hmm. seems never to find any real problems with policing of demonstrations in Hong Kong. Well, you can see from some of our public reports, like uh, the so-called uh, 18th of August incident, um, we have made a comprehensive report uh, making uh, some findings against the, some police officers and making recommendations of how uh, police handling on public order events should be improved, things like this. Our general approach is that we, if we receive complaints in relation to public order event, we deal with it on a, an evidence-based approach. So you can't initiate um, a inquiry yourselves. You have to wait passively for somebody to say to you, we're unhappy. Uh, again, not exactly. Normally, this would be the easiest way for us to start any proceedings. Mm. Because if people receive complaints, then we can sort of scrutinize the report and making all the, our powers under the uh, legislation. But including in the legislation, this one particular clause specifying that the IPCC can initiate inquiries with the police on issues which may be conducive to complaints. Well, in the August 18th issues, it seems that the IPCC uh, deliberately points uh, out in the conclusion that there's no political motivation behind it. In a way, I think this is not consistent with those evidence we find in public, uh, including some of the instructions by regional commanders, uh, including the actual behavior they have done to the demonstrators. Uh, I think uh, even though they do not find direct evidence of these kind of political bias, they should not underwrite to say that so the police have nothing to do with police consideration. Well, thank you very much. I'm afraid we're out of time. And those guidelines are now in force. Let's see how they work. This week, there was an election for members of the Sports Federation and Olympic Committee of Hong Kong. But with many members holding two votes, while well, others have none, that election doesn't exactly look like a democratic process. On Thursday night, during their biannual election, most of the current officers and popular candidates for the Sports Federation and Olympic Committee of Hong Kong were in no mood to talk to reporters. As expected, most incumbent officers were re-elected. There'd previously been a controversy that the Hong Kong team at the Winter Olympics hadn't been accompanied by a doctor. That had raised concerns about the efficiency of the organization's operation. In previous elections, the volume of applause alone was enough to elect Timothy Fock and his son, Kenneth Fock, 
to the power hierarchy. But the 16-year president of the organization wasn't about to answer questions for himself. This is the first proper contested election, even if only for the vice president posts. Of the nine candidates running, only eight could win. But the one outsider, Ho Kim Fai, was not seen as a serious threat. Out of 75 sports association members, only 31 can vote, and each of them holds two votes. Only six of the existing officers have voting rights, and it's unclear what actually qualifies someone to vote. There's a lot of uh, senior members who have been contributed to the Hong Kong in the past, including to my time of uh, being athletes. So they're well respected, but I guess it's only the timing. Um, after several years or many years, they need some changes. As a rowing athlete and Olympian, Ho is very much involved with local sports development. She also helps in sports for people with disabilities. But compared with other candidates, she is an outsider. Nearly all officers hold top posts in a number of sports associations. Some also sit in the government sports commission. There's a culture of the organization's top echelons being passed on by succession. When Hu Fa Guang and Tong Yun Gai, who've been vice presidents for 22 years, step down, their sons will take over. The fathers of present officers, Wang Manchu and Yu Guoklang, have also held their posts for years. Timothy Fox's son, Kenneth, will continue to hold his seat. The committee doesn't just oversee major sports organizations in Hong Kong. It also has the power to determine the qualifications of athletes who will compete and to coordinate participation in international competitions for all Hong Kong teams. It has annual funding from the government to manage its operations and also applies for funds to enter international contests. Information from the government reveals that in the last three years about 20 million has been allocated for recurrent funding. Even though the Pulse asked for details of competition funding, none has been provided so far. Wong has been fighting for fair selection and the rights of athletes for more than five years. He says he's experienced a lot of unfairness when dealing with the Olympic Committee. Ho 
容易见到本人嘅时候咧，有好多系容易沟通到嘅。But the government isn't ready to interfere in sports circles due to the rules of political independence laid down by the International Olympic Committee. 政府尊重港协暨奥委会同埋国体育总会嘅自主同埋独立运作，同时会监察公堂嘅有效运用。其實你唔可以話我哋內部嘅事情嚟㗎，你唔可以干涉。但係唔好忘記咧，當我哋運動員選咗出嚟代表香港，其實就係同香港市民係有關係。當我哋用公堂嘅時候咧，係同每位市民都有關係。咁所以我會覺得呢個透明度係必須要嘅。We'll see you at the same time next week. Till then, goodbye. Judge said what you got in your defense, son. Fifty-seven channels and nothing on.